In April 2020, just as the global pandemic was kicking off, Lawrence and I started recording our weekly Friday Firesides. These are conversations broadcast live over the Crowdcast platform and joined by people all over the world who listen in and share their thoughts with us via the chat. We started these live recordings as an opportunity to keep in touch with our members, as well as process what it meant to run a business during a pandemic. Since then, we've broadcast nearly every single Friday and built up a library of over 100 episodes. We cover a range of different topics from money to meaning, pricing to purpose, vision to vulnerability, entrepreneurship to empathy, and product design to life design. This is our perspective of what it means to do business from the inside out, as well as the outside in. If you're a business hippie just like us, then you'll definitely find something of value here. We hope that these conversations inspire and motivate you to do work and build businesses that create meaningful change without burning out. Because like us, you're just wanting to make money, do good, and be happy. I'm joined by the wonderful <laughs> Becky Dakuna and Kieran Morris, community members and to a certain level teachers of mine now around this idea of the Enneagram, uh, which we're going to be diving into in the next for the next 45 minutes or so. But what I wanted to start off with was just trying to uh, explain why this is happening. Uh, now, I talked to Kieran a while ago. Uh, we've had conversations about the Enneagram. I was curious mainly from my perspective in terms of there's lots of things I've learned along the way uh, about entrepreneurship, the selling, making stuff, launching stuff, pricing, marketing, podcasting, right? all these things, the, the, these skills that we, we learn uh, along the way, particularly if you kind of like building the parachute as you fall uh, <laughs> in terms of like not being ready or prepared with the business stuff before you actually start the business. Uh, and I've hit some some kind of quite painful roadblocks along the way, which I thought was uh, a limit of my understanding about stuff and how business works. When in fact, I've really discovered is a limit of my own self understanding and why uh, certain things I find more effortful, scary, challenging, or downright don't want to do them. <laughs> it's like, no, there's like, ah. And um, I discovered the Enneagram like six years ago, a coach of mine uh, shared it with me. I was going through this kind of process of just understanding what I really want, what I really need, what's difficult. And she said, you know, do this thing called the Enneagram. I did it. She gave me this thick book, didn't read it, uh, found out what type I was, didn't quite resonate, a little bit did, a little bit didn't, and then I just left it. And we stopped the coaching thing anyway. And so I never went much deeper than that. And then the conversation and the topic re-emerged. Re, re <laughs> Uh, there was a resurgence of uh, the Enneagram within my universe through the Happy Startup School community, Becky, Kieran, many others, uh, Chris Kenworthy. Um, I think Anya was now interested in France's massive advocate of it. Um, she's actually probably the one who's like stoked the fire and everyone's like, oh, we're going to talk about the Enneagram. Um, but I, I, looking back into it, I, I had a bit of a misturn, discovered another type, thought I was that. Anyway, a lot of this stuff, made start to make sense to me because of how i understood uh some 
behavior traits described in there that related to me that then related to why certain things in business didn't work so well or why I found them so difficult or why I found them so easy. And one of the things I was talking with Kieran about was like, there's, there's something around, it isn't about, this is not just about knowing that these things exist. It's about why these behaviors exist and where do they come from, which is the interesting bit, which I think is uh, some of the deeper work that you can do if you think of entrepreneurship as a journey of self-discovery rather than just a way of making money. So just trying to set the scene here. It's like, um, it's really about this, you know, stay with us for the next 30 minutes and maybe for subsequent episodes, if this is really of interest, if you're really curious about your own personal journey through building a business, how you grow as well as how the business grows. And I believe that's one of the things I'm passionate or interested about doing my own thing because I want to do my own thing. The thing is, what is my own thing and how do I fit into that thing? So what we're going to do is going to brief overview for those of you who don't know it. And then rather than try and get into the weeds about what the Enneagram is, we're just going to talk about ourselves because that's fun. <laughs> So <laughs> we enjoyed that. But hopefully through that, you'll learn a bit about how the Enneagram is helping us and also on how it can maybe be used for yourself uh, when you kind of think about the way you respond to the events and happenings in business. Somebody posted, I can't remember now who, oh, it was Ray, someone in the community, Ray Martin posted something this week on LinkedIn about, and um, it was about kind of self-discovery and the importance of that and how that can kind of shape your life journey and your career career path and how important self-knowledge is and there was a Thomas Merton quote in there that really stood out for me which was I'm not going to remember it exactly now but it, it was basically saying that people can spend their whole kind of careers climbing a ladder of success whatever that's like whatever that success means to us and then realize that the ladder was leaned up against the wrong wall and I really love that that idea that um and I think that links in a lot to the Enneagram that if we can really know ourselves we can build our careers and our businesses um, and our products if we have a business around who we are, what motivates us, what um, yeah, what gifts we have, um, and we can do it in a way that's much more impactful. What's coming up for me as you were speaking about that, Becky, is just thinking back to myself when I first launched my business, which was in my early 20s. I'd been made redundant and I had gone for several jobs which I was probably far underqualified for, but in an eightish kind of way, I'd gone, well, surely they'll want me. Anyway, I decided when failure reared its head to instead start a business. And interestingly, I hadn't thought about this before, but it was about the same time that I actually came across the Enneagram. This is, I'd come across it maybe a few years before, sort of 2006, five. But yeah, five years later, I found myself in that situation. and. It was really interesting to start integrating the work of the Enneagram in quite a basic introductory way at that stage, but to integrate that into my journey through those really early stages of building a business. And of course, I was building it because I didn't have a job. I was building it because I needed it to make an income. And I had all of these external needs for what it was, but none of that really provided what you were speaking to, Carlos, that thing of taking entrepreneurship sort of more as a journey into ourselves and finding what it is that I want to do rather than just I'm doing this to to satisfy the need to make money and I think it's I found that really interesting how that journey has played out for me over the last 12 years really there's a whole little thread 
that I was drawn to around why we start businesses in the first place and why we do work in the first place. And there are various levels of needs. And if I think of Maslow's hierarchy, we can start talking about that. Self-actualization on the top, survival on the bottom. Don't want to go down that rabbit hole too quickly (laughs) because I want to focus primarily on the Enneagram first. And so what I wanted to maybe start off with was maybe, Kieran, if, if you could just give a brief overview of what the Enneagram is, and then I was going to get invite Becky maybe to dive a little bit deeper as to um, how you know it isn't, well, a bit more of the slightly bit of the subtleties in terms of the ideas of connections and connected mm. types and things like that. Well, the Enneagram in its kind of modern form is based on pretty ancient oral tradition, the kind of wisdom that was passed down by people generation to generation, and it became more popular in kind of um, psychological circles in the 70s in in the States, and it's sort of made inroads over the years. And at its core, it's really a way of describing nine distinct personality types, nine ways of filtering the world. And what those what those show is not the behaviors that we that we might undertake the habits that might be there but what the motivations are that lead us to form these habitual behaviors these these are mechanical things usually how we might go about processing a particular task or doing something and they get ingrained at such a level in the body that we don't really think about them consciously anymore these we call them type behaviors in the enneagram and by studying the Enneagram, what we're allowing ourselves to do is to develop that ability of the observer, of self-observation, to build our self-awareness such that we can start to see how these habitual behaviours might be masking some of the other stuff that's out there in the world, that how our type is filtering the world for us and not necessarily showing us everything that's out there. Now, a lot of that's for very good reason. Our type structure has protected us beautifully throughout our development as children, as adolescents, as adults. So there are many wonderful things about it. I think that can be a bit of a, a misconception to start with, with the Enneagram is the idea that now I find my type, now I just do the opposite. And it's not quite as simple as that. So understanding one's type leads to the ability to relax one's type. And really, that sounds almost stupidly simple, but that really is the full extent of the work. And so there's these nine types that I discovered, uh, and I tried to read about all of them so I could work out what my type was. But it isn't as simple necessarily as, oh, you're a type, and everything is there, and Kieran's alluding to that in terms of, yeah, there's more to it. Becky, maybe just elaborate a little bit more in terms of just to give people a, an idea of the sophistication maybe around this model rather than it just being, oh, you're just one thing and that's it. So there are three centers of intelligence, head, body and heart. And then within each of those, there are three types. So that makes up nine types in, in, in total. And they're all laid out around a, a, a circle or a star. And so the top three, eight, nine, and one are body types. And then two, three, and four are heart types. And five, six, and seven are head types. So just want to just say, well, firstly, it's kind of complex, but it's also dynamic. So there's lots of arrows that connect 
the different types. And each type is connected to two others by arrows. And that reflects growth and stretch kind of paths, I guess. it When we're healthy or, or unhealthy, we can take on attributes that are in those, almost move towards those other types that we're connected to. But we've also got what's called wings on either side. So the two that are adjacent to us that can have an influence. We can kind of lean into any of those wings at any time or both of them. So there's already a lot of complexity there. And then just to add one other level of complexity, there are subtypes within each type. So uh, each type has three subtypes and that's about our kind of like basic survival instincts. So um, self-preservation, social social instinct and um, sexual or one-to-one. Um, as in the desire to kind of uh, form a close relationship with one other person. So we're not going to go into that level of detail, but I guess the reason I wanted to say some of that is just to say that this is a really kind of, it's really like sophisticated and deep tool, I guess, or model. And there's years of kind of years and years and years, decades of exploration that can be done around it. And there's so much kind of deep wisdom in it. And so it doesn't kind of box you. I've heard the Enneagram described as, it's not a box to be put in. It's a key to unlock the box, um, which is a bit cheesy, but I do like <laughs> the idea that we're in some, in many ways, we are kind of to an extent trapped within our personality. So the Enneagram doesn't box us into our personality. It's, it helps us to, it reveals the patterns that we might be stuck in, patterns of thinking, feeling, behaving, so that we can kind of unlock that box and, and have more freedom, more, more movement, more growth. And as Kieran was saying, we can kind of step out of those, some of those personality or ego trappings and kind of get closer to like Enneagram describes it as um or a lot of Enneagram teachers describe it as kind of moving towards your essence away from like some of your the stuff that traps us in our personality. Mm. I know that the three of us are three different centers, heart, head, mm. and belly center. And I thought it might be interesting for people just to hear a, a kind of a little bit briefly about the centers themselves. Because the, the head center that was Becky was speaking about, the five, six and the sevens, this is kind of where we do our thinking and analyzing, remembering, and it's projecting ideas and forward planning. And those types, the head types are people that tend to respond to to life through their thoughts. And they really have, you know, very vivid imaginations and a really strong ability to kind of correlate ideas. The heart center, these are the twos, the threes and the fours. So this is this is Becky's center as a two is where is where we experience emotions and those kind of kind of wordless sensations that tell us how we feel and you know rather than how we're, we're thinking about something so i mean the the emotions here can range from from very strongly felt things very dramatic emotions to things which have a, a beautiful subtlety to them so this isn't about emotions all being absolutely in your face it's you know, there's there's gorgeous subtlety here in the in the heart center, and then the belly center, the eights, the nines, and the ones, is really the center. Sometimes called the, the guts of the body center, is kind of the the center of our instinctual intelligence. It's that that grounded presence. It's it's that sort of sense of being, rather than that sense of thinking or feeling necessarily, and. We often experience ourselves, you know, how we experience ourselves physically in relation to other people and in terms of our environment. That's kind of that's that's belly type energy. So we've got like this 
picture of these types and um i like what you said earlier kieran about them kind of describing the filters or kind of yeah the way i heard it was these are the different filters that we can see life through and the way i like that uh, the reason i like that because it can blind us to things as well as focus help help us focus on some things and blind us to other things and i i see that i relate that to this idea of luck you know and opportunity is like sometimes opportunities are right in front of us. We just don't see them for whatever reason. And so I think of the Enneagram as a way of actually understanding why certain opportunities might not be seen. This idea of unlocking, and I'm relating it to something we talked about before, Kieran, about a threshold, I think you said, about being able to move through something or beyond something. So I thought I'd just touch on that because this is the, this idea of like rather than the Enneagram suddenly saying, all right, you're this type of person and that's why you can't do that thing. Is like how an awareness of this threshold can help you then potentially cross it. Well, I'd be happy to talk about the uh, the eightish vice or passion of lust, and it's really uh, lust. It's the kind of um, it's the lust for life is really what what powers eights. And before I knew much about myself and about the enneagram, uh, this played out so clearly in my in my experience as as a youngster. And my dear mother, who is a social seven, tried her very best to steer me onto, uh, let's say, a different path, a more sustainable path. And yet I would I would go out. The bank had given me a credit card. I should use all of this money. I wanted these wonderful DVDs. I wanted a coffee machine as a student at 21. Of course, I was going to buy organic everything. Where's my student loan gone? Oh, shit. I've got no money left. I've got, oh, but the credit card's been extended. Fantastic. I've got another £2,000. And after three years of this as a student, because, again, I, I put my energies into directing musicals into doing all of these other activities i wasn't thinking about the money i was just allowing this thing to to take what had been offered to me without even asking and i got to this moment where i graduated and i'd gone to the supermarket and i couldn't even pay for my shopping my debit card was completely overdrawn and my credit card was rejected and I just remember, I was in Brighton, I remember having to leave all of my shopping there on the counter and just walking outside and just weeping as I walked home because I just felt so disconnected from, from myself and struggling to, to really comprehend how any of this was even to do with me. Even at that point, my, my instinct was to, to reach out and ask for more help, to ask for more you know, financial support from parents. And, and actually what felt incredibly cruel at the time from my mother, I think was probably a wonderfully useful life lesson actually, actually was to not bend there, which was to have this very strong boundary of not allowing. And as I say, it felt cruel at the time, but actually for me as an eight, that boundary, that clarity was something that made me go, I need to sort this out. And it kind of got me back into that sense of, of being of self and reconnecting with a different part of that belly energy instead of just like, I want everything now and I'm going to have it because I can. It was like, OK, how am I going to fix this? And that came very strongly to me thinking about the kind of the lust energy. We sometimes hear about the, yeah, the vices or passions and they can be a bit hard to connect to sometimes. It's like the words Becky was speaking to of naming different types. When you first see the, the passions and vices, 
you know, sevens, you show them gluttony and they might think, well, what the hell is this all about? I'm not greedy. But it it's this kind of subtlety and you can often see in retrospect, you know, with that benefit of hindsight and the deeper work, how clearly these things have played out through these kind of mechanical decisions. We've, we've just pursued this type of behavior without even knowing it. Sometimes with the Enneagram, we're in understanding ourselves through the lens of the Enneagram, we can realize that sometimes even those kind of passions, the vices, like everyone was describing, can actually, at that and all of the other kind of personality trappings, can actually kind of help to get us to where we're, we are. So Beatrice Chestnut, who's one of my favorite Enneagram teachers, she talks about how what's got us to here isn't necessarily what's needed to get us kind of to there, you know, to where we want to get to next. So for instance, for me, a lot of my, the stuff around my personality, my Enneagram type is what's made me successful in where I have been successful in different areas of um, work, running my own business or as a lead, it's stuff around I'm an Enneagram too, and we'll dive deeper, I think, into all of this. But the um, for twos, you know, the, the, I suppose the gifts, if you would call it that, of the two is it's things like, you know, being really relationship focused, being able to read people, empathize, build connections. So, yeah, that means I can build strong relationships with clients or collaborators, et cetera. I can sell all of that stuff. But it's that thing of it's um, that's the kind of surface level stuff. It, it They are in some ways their their strengths. But actually, um, I think the Enneagram kind of is more exposing than that. It kind of helps us to to look at the icky bits, to see that those gifts are actually sometimes compulsive. So hmm. for two, there can be this compulsive drive to win people over, to meet other people's needs. And what we're, and the Enneagram has helped me to realize that there's all kinds of stuff going on in there, that in doing that, I'm not always noticing my own needs that I've had to face kind of because the, the vice for or the passion for twos is pride. And that was a real kind of blow discovering that because I'd always been told my whole life that I'm really kind of humble and modest. But the pride for twos is that kind of almost making yourself indispensable. And uh, it's that kind of that sense of I'm needed here. If I was, if I didn't do this, what would happen? So I've had to grapple with that and that, um, the journey for me, there's all kinds of threads I could take it down, but I'll be brief. But the, there's been a journey for me around realizing that actually I don't have to be at the heart of everything. So in terms of a, I, I can empower, whether it's teams that I'm managing, I can empower them to support each other rather than come to me for their needs to be met. Or if it's um, clients to empower them to find their needs met through each other or through setting up peer support things. It doesn't always have to be me. But there's a pain in there as well, because there's a pain for twos of, oh, if I'm not needed, then who am I? My worth in the world. It's very different from like looking at strengths. I'm a big fan of looking at strengths and like, you know, mm. positive and building on strengths. But actually the Enneagram, it's it's different to that. It it because to be really um almost to, to really grow in our self-discovery journey with the Enneagram, it's actually more about facing our shadows the things that we're not looking at that are driving some of those things that on the surface look like gifts that actually are mm. probably limiting us i'm liking where we're getting to in terms of one of the things i wanted to do was just provide our own personal experiences of um, the enneagram and how related to 
our lives in in you know our, our actual day to day sort of progress through business in particular, but also just generally our life experiences and what what it's helped us learn or unlearn maybe. And I just wanted to reflect because I'm just very new now to the Enneagram. I don't have the depth of knowledge that either Becky or Kieran have, but there are things that I've been reading about the type that I'm drawn to, and this is a type six. And like Kieran was talking about, it's a head type and fear is a very strong part of it. Well, I see that there's an element, there's a drive. I don't know how best to articulate it. I'll, I'll defer to either Becky or Kieran to express that better. But what I wanted to say was there's two things that jumped out at me when I was reading about this type, which I hope will be helpful for anyone just understanding, oh, how is it going to help me and understand myself? There's something around what I read was this idea of um, being drawn to structures, to organizations, to companies, but only if I trusted them. If if I don't, you know, there's a deference to authority and structure, but if I don't trust that authority, then I will break away. That's how I understood it. And it made me think about... I. I remember early stages of my sort of professional journey wanting to go and work with a big consultancy or a big company doing, you know, some of these kind of the, the, the entrance exams and, and all the, I can't remember how they describe these days, but anyway, just trying to get a job there through these, these tests that they were giving us. And at the same time through that realizing I actually don't like this place. <laughs> and so on one hand I was really drawn to the idea of, Oh, you know, I loved school. I loved knowing what to do and being told in a sense, all right, do this, this, and this, and if you do it well, you get a tick. I loved that. I loved the idea of the process and the structure and understanding that. And for some reason, I didn't trust being in an organization, the organizations that I was looking at. It was something that I was resisting. I was like, I didn't like being, at the same time, I didn't like being told what to do, which is, again, I said, this is something that I kind of intuitively, and this was kind of articulated black and white, in this Enneagram thing. And so this, oh, I don't like structure, but I'm also now drawn to community, which is a form of structure that feels I trust it somehow implicitly. And that's why I'm wedded to being part of a community and building a community and trying to create this group of people or to draw this group of people around me. The other thing is like the whole fear thing is like, thankfully, I went into business with Lawrence. And Lawrence, he has an idea and he will just go with it and run with it. And that's why we have lots of different things that worked and also things that didn't. And and I know in the early days, I would be very much the, mm, what about this? What about that? This might not happen. This might not happen. And even with my own ideas, sometimes I'd have a, you know, I'd have a big idea, but before I've even had the idea start, I'd be thinking about, oh, what if this happened? What if that happened? I'd be trying to second guess and plan ahead for potential failures or potential dangers. And then I discovered the lean startup idea, which was rather than build, 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 and then fail, it's like, how can you do little things lots of times to then just generate an understanding and knowledge? And that, for me, felt comfortable, even though the fear was still there. By launching and doing things, small things, that weren't so catastrophic if they didn't work, but got me learning how to do the stuff. Because once I knew how to do something, for instance, this podcast on the Friday Fire, so I was like, all right, I've got a process now. I know exactly what to do. Boom, I don't care who I talk to. I'll do it. And it's like, it's fine. I'm not scared to just even launch into this, which I had no idea what it was going to be like last week. And then the final thing and I just like I've just learned was this thing about as a head type, the and I'm going to use this word advice. Well, just don't take this too strongly but this idea of the the antidote for me is to be an 
to be present because I'm too easily going. Uh, and doing something like this is my growth opportunity because if I start thinking, oh, what's Quebec going to say? What's Kieran going to say? How's this going to go? Is anyone going to – if I do that, I just can't talk. But if I just like stay present, stay present, stay mm. present, work with what is, A, I get really I get a lot of enjoyment out of that because I'm not worrying anymore. But B, it just it feels like it flows. I think you've described really well some of the kind of the seeming contradictions in in, in being a six. Is there's that desire for sixes have a desire for uh their yeah, they're longing for authority. Um uh, some kind of authority figure or and structure, etc. But they're also uh, skeptical of of it quite often, or suspicious maybe of authority. And I guess un, uh, the driving thing in all of that and the stuff that you were describing is that there's there's this fear, and um, for sixes there's a desire to manage uncertainty so that you feel safe. And I think that was coming across in what you were saying, Carlos. That kind of finding ways of managing um or finding ways of feeling safe and secure and managing uncertainty whether that's um uncertainty in terms of growing a business or whether it's uh uncertainty around how this session will go you've put in place strategies your head strategies in a sense quite often to to not all though because you back you're accessing your body there you there's growth in there around kind of grounding yourself the presence you were describing to kind of um feel safe as well that you you're describing kind of some of those six challenges really really well i think there well what i was thinking about becky was how what carlos was describing there in maybe not feeling that this structure of business was was for him is something that actually is is very relatable outside of that and i was thinking about how that played out for me as an eight and and how actually and this is why I think the Enneagram is very interesting, because whilst I remember my early jobs not really feeling like it was the right place for me, the reasoning for that was different. The, the outcome was the same, this, this sort of sense of, of mistrust. But from, from what I heard from Carlos's description was this might be about questioning, you know, is this, is this trustworthy? Is this the right path? Are they doing the thing that fits in with my values? My motivation was about testing the people in charge. It was about testing boundaries. Do I respect this person? Are they going to come down on me hard if I push more? And I had an absolutely lovely nine as my manager when I first worked in a job, and he was wonderful. But he would take me out for lunches. I mean, it, it felt like it was the 80s. This was the mid-noughties. But he'd take me out for lunches, and we'd just go and drink bottles of red wine in an Italian restaurant and have this sort of wonderful time. And the boundaries just weren't there. But there were other people at the company who had very strict boundaries. And I found this as an eight very confusing. So it wasn't that I felt like the place wasn't for me because I didn't trust the, the cultural or what was there. But it was because I had these really mixed messages around boundaries from different people in positions of authority. And therefore, I questioned the authority because it, it was inconsistent. There's so much that I'd love to dive in. On one hand, I would love to continue, but there's some questions I'd like to tackle before we leave. Um, I'm going to start with uh, Marianne's question, which is at the top from at the moment. Uh, and she was asking, I think it's just to do with, all right, you're a particular type. So can you work with energy from other centers, e.g. if a heart type moving to belly or head type? 
there are different schools of thought about this, but I would say that we all have the ability to to move in to a different type. In fact, certainly when I've done work in person with the Enneagram before, some of the earliest exercises I remember were getting everyone in the room to stand up and actually kind of move themselves physically into that type. And I would notice when I was putting myself in my head, the analysis, the details, the thinking would be there. When I when I placed my attention in the heart, I felt connected to those in the room. And when I connected to the body, I found myself stomping around the room at sort of top speed. And that experience was totally different to everyone else's experience of, of those respective centers, because my experience of those different types of energy is through the lens of eight. But but I still have access to all of that stuff. But how that shows up for me is is still always going to be through the lens of eight. Yeah, I like that and agree with that. I guess the idea from a lot of Enneagram teachers is that it's not enough to just operate from one and be immersed in one centre of intelligence. There are three that centres and we need to be able to access them all, but we're some are more readily accessible to us than others. So for me, I mean, I'm right in the middle of that, that heart I'm right in the heart centre. So sometimes I find myself even talking and doing this. I, it, it's so, I, so much of what I do and say and feel is coming from a heart energy, connecting to people at a heart place. And I, but I've needed to really, there have been times where I've realised in the last kind of couple of years how disconnected I can be from my body in particular. And so, mm. you know, when people ask, where do you feel that in your body? I'm like, I haven't got a clue. Um, and I've been really working on that through doing lots of yoga more exercise just being more present in my body and then there's the arrow lines I guess it's worth saying you no know, we're mentioning again that um twos are connected to eights and fours so there are times where twos kind of can really benefit from the authenticity that come that eights and fours both have because twos that can be hard it can be hard to kind of be vulnerable and to really show uh, there's this deep fear that if we really show our um true selves to everyone will we be loved for who we are will mm. we be rejected so we adapt to people a lot so it really helps me to go to the body type of eight at times you know and to draw on the you know to be to learn to be direct to learn mm. to feel stuff in my body to learn to express anger in a more bodily sense all of that stuff helps me thank you becky um all right we're gonna have to whiz through these two questions um let's start with tom uh one of you um why is anger associated with the belly type and not part of the emotional spectrum well, it'd be interesting to hear more from Tom, but I know we don't have time here. I, I would say that that anger is the passion associated with the position one on the Enneagram, which is a body type. And for ones, the transformational work is about transforming anger to serenity and how anger and serenity are kind of part of the same thing, really. Mm. They're part of the same strata. I think it's quite easy talking about anger as well to think about it quite one dimensionally as the sort of like, you know, anger is almost a negative thing and joy is over here as a positive thing. And actually, I would say more that that these expressions of emotional, you know, outpouring are just energy. And that's one thing I really like about the Enneagram is the expression of anger is not with a, is not with judgment. It's just that anger is energy. And it's that's how that specific expression of of oneness is is with that with that anger 
It doesn't mean eights can't get angry. It doesn't mean nines can't get angry. It doesn't mean any other type on the Enneagram can't get angry and experience anger. It's just there is a there's an intrinsic connection with the work of particular body types and anger. It's probably a little bit confusing just to add to that, Tom, that because mm. I think what Tom, I think maybe what Tom's saying is kind of if anger is an emotion, why is it there in the kind of body or belly types and not? So basically the idea is, is in the three centres, there are that each of the three centres, there's a kind of an ever present, like a driving almost emotion that or a dominant emotion. Sometimes it's repressed, sometimes repress it, but it's it's an important emotion. So um for the body types, it's anger, for the head types, it's fear. And I think Carlos has indicated well that talked a lot really clearly around fear for sixes, but that's for other head types too. And then for heart types, it's sadness and, and also shame that are that are there. So it doesn't mean that the other types, you know, I still feel anger, but um, but it's that they're re- really underlying emotion for the heart types is this sadness. Whereas for body types, the work is often to work out their relationship with anger, and um, whether they're repressing it cool. or overexpressing it. All right, I'm going to ask you now for a quick answer on the next one. Well, Melissa, is I wonder how much our type is related to the nature nurture question, i.e., how one's true self is hidden to some people due to trauma, mild or stronger. Two things that come up for me. One is I've said this before, but I always like the anecdote of the uh, the midwife who could predict at birth with about eighty percent certainty what what children were, what new bones were, just by their their actions there out of the womb. Now that is to say, uh, who knows? But um, what I do know is that type forms between the ages of about two and ten. It kind of crystallizes, and it will crystallize into one of those nine filters now how type expresses itself in the world is very much part of the nurture part of things so i i think that it is a it, there's a duality there how type is expressed very much and and particularly subtype behavior which becky briefly mentioned earlier is so much about how our type how our filter plays out in our interactions with the world and the thing i'd say the second thing i'd say is on this question about about trauma which i might interpret here as as living in a in a stressed position that Becky again mentioned the arrows earlier so certainly some types can can perhaps look not like their their core type sometimes and that is often because they are living in a stressed position and perhaps have been living and existing in that position for so long that they are they look similar to to the direction of the arrow that they're moving towards so a, a six who's lived for a long time in stress might look quite three-ish an eight who's lived in stress for a long time might look quite five-ish. I certainly relate to that very strongly from my teenage years in particular. Okay, and last but by no means least, there's a quick answer or quick question here from Alan. Uh, can you recommend a good online resource? Well, other than the next episode of this podcast, <laughs> what could you suggest? I think I, I think many people know I'm not a huge advocate of of the online tests. I am a big fan of the traditional typing interviews because I think there's a lot of subtlety that gets lost. I also will say that for anyone that's done self awareness work and any kind of self development work, enneagram or not, I think the tests are less accurate because often there's been some development work in, internally, and therefore a, a you know a computer simulation can't necessarily see the nuance of that. So I think it's always good to to talk to somebody with that experience first and then there are there are lots of really good resources in terms of things that you can read and do that deeper exploration but i think actually talking with with others and 
and also observing the the oral mm. tradition it, it was like that for for a reason it is an incredibly powerful way to learn about other people is to hear them speak and to witness other people's experience of the world and and truth of the world i trained with um Beatrice Chestnut and Uranio Pies. And I, I agree with Kieran that I, I love the way the way to really learn this stuff is to see people like like we've been doing, but more of it like uh, to hear panels, you know, to hear a panel of threes talk about what it's like to be a PK3, etc. So seeing those kinds of videos, there's a brilliant podcast, Enneagram 2.0. That's my favorite Enneagram podcast. And I, I, I do think there are two really accurate questionnaires out there that um, you have to pay for, though. I think the free ones are all really low accuracy. Mm. There's two paid mm. ones um, that are 40, 50 quid. And I think they are gen- they are really accurate, but not 100% accurate. And I think you then need to go away and test it out. And like mm. Kieran said, I love traditional typing interviews too, but it's whether you, if you've got time and energy to just do a slow exploration, it took me a couple of years to work out mm. what type I was. But some people kind of want to know quicker. Uh, I think in acknowledgement of what Kieran said, I think if you've already done some of the work, it becomes harder to use the tools to pinpoint yourself. And so I had to end up reading about these things more deeply to then clarify what what, what resonated most. Yeah. And yeah. I think the other thing, which I which is why I'm attracted to this, when you're talking about the oral tradition, Kieran, and just being able to talk, and like Becky was saying, hearing other people talk about their experiences of their type, doing it in community. Mm. doing it as a group of people so the more of you yeah. who are interested in this the more we'll probably all learn together mm. thank you very much everyone uh, thank you uh, thank you for your attention i hope to do this again soon until then have a great weekend and have a good rest of your friday thank you kieran thank you becky thank you so much thank you for listening to this episode of the happy entrepreneur podcast to hear more inspiring conversations like this follow us on spotify and Apple Podcasts. Just search for The Happy Entrepreneur. In March, we'll be launching Tribe 7 of our Vision 2020 programme. If you're at a point in your career or entrepreneurial journey where you're asking yourself, what next? And you need the clarity and confidence to make some bold decisions about a new direction, then this programme is for you. We'll help you define what success really means to you Understand the impact that is yours to make. Make sure your mission is both energetically and financially sustainable. And also learn how to build a supportive community around yourself. We want people who are driven to do good in the world and are tired of trying to do it on their own. We'll share the key lessons we've learned while building the Happy Startup School and pivoting from the stressful peaks and troughs of agency life to a life of freedom, adventure, service. And connection. We value learning, play and friendship and we'd like to help you discover the values and the work that align more to who you are. Don't struggle alone and don't get sidetracked by other people's measures of success. Discover for yourself what it means to create effortless impact. To apply for the next tribe go to vision.happystartups.co. We look forward to hearing from you.